Hey girls, boys, and folks beyond the binary, welcome back to On The Mic, outspoken LGBTQ storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, people from all over Chicago gather at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people. Now we're going back into the archives to bring the stories to you. This month, young love. It's awkward, painful, and hilarious. We're diving into the archives for stories about discovering our sexuality. These stories are not safe for work, my friends. Today we'll hear an older lesbian reflect on the party where she met her first love. We'll hear about two guys hooking up who are definitely not gay. And we've got a legendary outspoken story involving a curious fella and a decanter. Let's go, girls. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. And if you're enjoying the show while you're listening, please hop on to Apple Podcasts to give us a rating or a little review to boost the show to new listeners. Thanks. Milmina Gaynor is retired from the Chicago Board of Education. She plays drums and shakers with the Drum Diva Percussion Ensemble, which is fantastic. If you haven't heard them, you should. She has told stories at the Museum of Science and Industry, DuSable Museum, Malcolm X Community College, and here on this stage. She produced a number of shows on Chicago Access Network. Melvina has also writes poetry. So let's welcome her to the stage again. This is my first affair. So please be kind. Handle my heart with care. Oh, please be kind. And it was not my first affair. I was already in a relationship, but that was a relationship that really was just a relationship because I needed a relationship at the time. <laughs> you know. But uh, the woman that I was with, she and I shared an English basement apartment in South Shore. And because basement floors are absolutely solid concrete, I decided to invest in something that was trendy at the time. I bought us a king-size waterbed. <laughs> yeah. How many of you remember those things? <laughs> Slushy, squishy, you know. You could never get enough water in them to make them solid. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter how many gallons you pumped in there. It was always a soft spot over here another soft spot over there, you know, so. But anyway, we decided that we were going to Christian this waterbed by having us an all-girls, all-night orgy. Yeah! I was, I was new to the lesbian culture, so I really didn't know a lot of women to invite. But she did. <laughs> and one of the women she invited, well, 
Anyway. <laughs> have, you, have you ever met somebody and you were just automatically attracted to them and you didn't really understand why? But they had the kind of physical body that you wished you had been born with. They were just that perfect shape. So anyway, one of the people that she invited was this person. And we all sat around and we had dinner and after dinner we drank a little wine and smoked a little weed and had a little conversation. And then we got down to the serious business <laughs> of fucking. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is an orgy, so you don't make love at an orgy, okay? That is not the purpose. <laughs> the, the purpose of an orgy is to have sex with multiple partners, okay? And you don't get too engaged with any individual because then it kind of spoils the circle. <laughs> All right. So it's kind of like weed. How many of you know the rule for weed? You puff, puff, pass. <laughs> okay? Puff, puff, pass. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and so, it was going pretty good. You know, everybody was getting a little bit of this one and a little bit of that one. And we were all at the same level of excitement. And then she got to me and she decided that was it. She wasn't going any further. And everybody's looking at her going, what the hell are you talking about? This is not supposed to be, I'm finding myself a partner night. You know, you're not supposed to just stop the party because you don't want to go any further. And she said, no, I'm not going any further, and I'm where I want to be. You can get where you want to be, but I'm staying here. She had chosen me to be with for the rest of that night. And I'm like, okay, let me open my eyes and see what I'm really looking at here. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so... I took a moment, I opened my eyes, and I looked up at her, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's not bad, okay. That, <laughs> that, that works for me. She doesn't have to go anywhere she doesn't want to. I'm good, you know, I'm good. <laughs> so anyway, she stayed there for the night, and you know, those long, I call her my long, dark chocolate almond bar because she was tall, dark, and I thought very handsome. And she had almond-shaped eyes that she would hide behind three-inch thick bifocals because my baby couldn't see any further than her hand. <laughs> I swear. Which might have been why she chose me, because she really <laughs> shouldn't see. <laughs> but, 
But when, when I looked up and saw those eyes, it, it was it. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm comfortable. And so the stroking began and the kissing began and I kind of melted and enjoyed the rest of the evening. And when everybody got up that next morning, she was one of the women who had decided to fix us all breakfast. I'm truly impressed. This is not a femme. She's a soft butch. And she's cooking us breakfast. Oh, wow, I, I was really impressed. That did it. <laughs> okay, because I wasn't going to be cooking. I don't do that. <laughs> anyway, the night ended, and, and I didn't really see her again for about two weeks because we didn't run in the same, same circle. Had we run in the same circle, I'm sure that we would have had that affair long before that night. But I began to see her around at parties of friends. I found out later that she was actually stalking me. Not stalking in a negative way, <laughs> you, know, you know, but she was trying to catch up with where I was. And she did. You know, we would have those little loose conversations. How you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. What you been up to? Oh, not much. What you been gonna do? You know what? One time we had a conversation and she told me, I'm, I'm getting ready to register for school because we were both in our early 20s. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because I'm getting ready to do the same thing. I'm gonna register at you know City College over here. And she says, oh, I'm registering at the same college. But what classes are you taking? I'm taking English, biology, this and that, you know, all the things that you have to take, even though you don't want to take. And uh, we had the same schedule, although we didn't have the same classes. So that meant our off time was in sync. Oh, okay. That was a good, that was a good, I don't know how we managed to do that, but we did. So we would meet up between classes and we would talk about the teacher and other students and the, and the subject that we were studying and all this good stuff. And one time she says, um, I'd like to take you out to the show. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> and in the meantime, my relationship with my then lover was, you know, it was disintegrating because I wasn't really in like with her like she was in like with me anyway. So when I told her that there was no point of us continuing this facade of a relationship, she had no problem and she moved. So that left me alone in that apartment by myself, which made it even more convenient because then she asked me for a date the second time we went to the show and she invited me over to her house for dinner. And she cooked, and she could cook. I'm, I'm totally impressed. I'm like, God, this is what I want. I don't want to have to be the only person who knows how to fix a meal. <laughs> you know, let's let this be a 50-50 kind of thing, a 60-40. She can do the 60, I'll do the 40. <laughs> so, 
So that ended up being a very good night. We didn't have sex that night, but the next time I invited her to my house and I cooked because I wanted her to see that I could cook too. You know, not my favorite place, not my favorite thing, but I can do it if I want to. <laughs> so I cooked dinner and she came over and we ate dinner and we watched a little TV. And then I put on some music, and I don't know if you remember, but back in the 70s, Al Green was the artist of choice. I, I'm so in love with you, whatever you want me to is all right with me. It worked. <laughs> we had um, part two. <laughs> anyway, we, we ended up staying together for four years. And that was a good relationship. I, you know, I, I must admit, I really, really liked her. She was the star of, I, I graduated from Columbia, that was the first one. And uh, she was in my student film. And the name of the film was A Thing of Beauty, It's Not a Joy Forever. And uh, I still have images of her in my head. And even when I think about her, I still get that uneasy, queasy kind of feeling because I, she was my first love, you know. I wasn't in like with her. I was in love with this woman. The thing that tore us apart was that we started off at school together, but I graduated and she didn't. Then I went on to get my bachelor's. I graduated and she didn't. So questions began to come in my head as to what was, the, what was her real goal? And that's when I knew that even though we might have been physically attracted to each other and might have even had good times with each other, this was not going to be a good relationship because it was always going to be slightly one-sided. So at the end of those four years, I decided it's time to go. And she never forgave me for that. She, she's, she's deceased now, but she never forgave me for that. And even when she had her new relationships and her new lovers, it was always like, yeah, don't you wish. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, not really. <laughs> but that's the way love is, you know, when you're young and you think you're in love, and you are in love, and you're in la-la land, and everything is just grand, and you know, then time goes on, and you see circumstances begin to change around you, and you change according to those circumstances, but you realize that your relationship isn't changing, then you have to decide, do I stay regardless, or do I go? And that's when you know that was your first love. But it's time for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Melvina Gaynor. The Dutchman. I know, isn't that intriguing and sexy? <laughs> the Dutchman was born in this town and has lived here all his life. He was an out bisexual in high school and people just thought he was confused. Ever since, he has been very strident about bisexual visibility. He's a leather man. Yes, let's give it up for leather man. <laughs> a family man with three children, a Latin mass Catholic, and a communist. He attended the third Chicago Pride Parade in 1972, has attended International Mr. Leather since the early 80s and has <laughs> got some fans and has served on the advisory committee to the Chicago History Museum's Out at CHM ex exhibition. <laughs> okay. You are a fan of everything. <laughs> he works as a bicycle mechanic and writes in his spare time. He drinks red whiskey smokes cigars, my favorite, gives blood regularly, and has served as a judge of election since 1982. Let's welcome the Dutchman to the stage. Okay, this is gonna go way back. Uh, my first day of high school, I saw this girl and she was just beautiful, she was gorgeous, she was tall, she was slender, she had honey blonde hair and she had a face that could have been the cover of Seventeen magazine. She looked a lot like Sybil Shepherd, so we'll just call her Sybil for our purposes here because, well, I don't want to give her a real name because she's mayor of uh, Illinois right now and being a politician. <laughs> she would not want to be associated with a tawdry story like this. Uh, now, of course, I was all of 14 years old and was desperate to meet her and know her and just smelled of desperation and said the wrong thing. And this was one of those failed crushes that all teenage boys have. And it must have been pretty obvious that I liked her because one day I was watching her walk down the hall and this guy came up to me and said, are you watching Sybil? I'm like, yeah. And, he said, and it turned out he had a crush on her since about the third grade. His name was Wally. And uh, he said, he invited me to spy on her. <laughs> he, he lived across the street from her. Now the thing is, she was the most circumspect girl ever to have been spied on. She never ever was in a state of undress, never did anything interesting, and mostly just lay on her bed talking on the phone, doing homework or reading books. But that did not stop us. <laughs> from watching her. That's probably illegal activity, uh, but there is a statute of limitations. We were minors at the time, but for God's sake, don't tell the mayor of Illinois because there's still civil action to worry about. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm watching her at the high-powered glasses one afternoon, and she's reading A Tale of Two Cities, which was also required for my English class. And Wally said, I'll suck your dick if you'll suck mine. <laughs> now, in the face of this appalling gratuitous and disgusting offer, I answered him just as any normal, healthy American boy would. You suck first. <laughs> like I said, I was normal. So anyway, at first we weren't very good at it, and it was kind of awkward up there, but then we went down to his bedroom like the next time, and at first we would just take a the thing on, and then we take out the whole package, and we drop our trousers to our ankle, and then we take our pants off so you could just get in there and just do it. And we got to be really good at it. And strange enough, at that point, we weren't really interested in Sybil a bit and stopped spying on her. 
And you know, we'd been good friends before that, but, but at this point we became really good friends. And we were so much alike. I mean, we dressed alike. We both wore boots and jeans and Western shirts. And you know, we, we, liked, um, we liked Herman Hesse and Steely Dan and those awful monster movies on UHF TV. In fact, even before we met, we liked the, our favorite movie was the same movie. The Bride of Frankenstein. And, you know, we, were, we became so close, and, you know, we, would, we didn't have any class together, we'd have lunch together every day, and we'd pass notes in the hall, and, you know, whenever we'd talk to each other, we'd whisper, because, you know, he's your best friend, so you whisper to him, right? I mean, he's your best friend, you whisper. And so anyway, one day, right after my photography class, this girl, Elena, uh, who I think was Greek because her name was Elena and her last name ended in S, um, called us faggots. Now, where the hell did that come from? We were like, this is the, I mean, the only reason we know each other is because we have a crush on the same girl, or at least we had a crush on the same girl. That seemed kind of overnight. But anyway, so we thought this was hilarious. We start laughing and kind of leaning against each other because this is just too funny. And she said, you're disgusting. And she went and she stomped off. And at this point, we were having trouble standing up because this was just too funny. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we're walking to Wally's, because you know, we're going to, you know, suck some cock, you know. <laughs> And like I said, we were, you know, we used to like do it like three or four times a day. You know, five you get kind of raw. Well, hey, we were, like, we were, we were like 14 or 15, where your testosterone is just insane, right? You know, so we're walking home, and he said, you know, as long as she's calling us a faggot, why don't we try some faggot stuff? And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, ass fucking that could be fun, and you know, so in the face of this disgusting, gratuitous, and appalling offer, I answered him just as any normal healthy, cock-sucking American boy would. I fuck first. <laughs> and so the first time out, we figured spit would do the job. And it's, it's a good thing I salivate like a hound dog, because it took a lot, of, a lot of spit, you know? And then the next day, it was his turn, and, and we had two ideas to do it differently. First off, I figured, well, if I'm kind of more like in a doggy position, I'll present my ass better than just lying flat in the bed. And his idea was Jurgen's lotion. If you, if you use some Jergens lotion, that'll just, you know, make things. And he was absolutely right. And again, we were like totally like we were 14 or 15 years old. So like this was insane. We would start doing this every day. You know, we went through probably two bottles of Jergens lotion that first week, you know. <laughs> and you know, it's a, it's a cherry almond scent to this, to this day. <laughs> just cherry almond and sodomy, they just, yeah, they go together. For me. And gosh, we got really good at this really quick, but we, we kind of had this problem. We, and we, we, we had expected to like ass fucking, but we didn't expect that being fucked would be really pretty cool too. In fact, you know, if you're jacking yourself or you're getting fucked, it's like you're, you're just hardwired to, to like it. And, and we were thinking, wouldn't it be like super cool if somebody could suck your cock while you were being ass fucked? I mean, wouldn't that just be like everything all at once and your head would simply explode? And so, and we were like kind of wondering, well, how do we do, we, we didn't want to bring somebody else into this because anybody we'd bring in would be a faggot. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, so anyway, so Wally was getting me ready to, you know, to be done and he had two fingers up there and, and he was sucking my dick and, and then all of a sudden instead of like going to ass fuck me, he like stuck four fingers up there. Then he's, he's getting like almost his whole hand up there and they're like, wow, this is great. And then we realized there are really no rules to this. We can do anything we want. And we figured out pretty quickly, you can, you can stick your whole hand up there. You know, a couple inches of wrist, too. And when, 
You know, when you guys got your hands up and... And we figured out stuff that nobody had ever in the entire history of the world figured out before. I mean, maybe some guy back in Thebes or Sparta 2,000 years ago. Okay, but we figured out, like, for instance, like, like if you use enough Jergens lotions, you could fuck anything. You could, like, fuck his armpit with Jergens lotion. You know, or, or we figured out that if you were sucking cock, if you really, really relaxed your throat, you could get that whole thing all the way back there. And nobody's ever done that before. You know? Or did you know that if you kiss a guy's asshole, it'll get him really, really, really hot? Now, nobody's ever thought of this before. So, like, you know, and we, did, we discovered something else that was really interesting. Remember how this began with my being all desperate for this girl? Did you know if you get your cock sucked like three times in the afternoon, you can go to a party in the evening and not be desperate? <laughs> in fact, you're just as cool as a cucumber. And the girls are like, obviously he likes me, but why isn't he all desperate? And then they'll like wonder what's wrong and they'll pretty much throw themselves at you. So I started getting all kinds of action that way and so did Wally. And we also discovered that there are a lot of guys out there who basically just want to be fucked. And we didn't know top and bottom at the time, but we were totally tops. And what a great time in your life to be a top when you're like 16. <laughs> now, later on, we discovered that we, we weren't really as clever as we thought we were, that there were already words for like fisting and rimming and frottage and deep, th and, but in retrospect, it was really very, very special for us because we had discovered sex all on our own. We were like virgins on honeymoon, and we made sex something totally that was ours. The girls that I, I screwed, they already had expectations. They already sort of had a script to follow. But with, with me and Wally, it was totally personal. And so I'm going to say be virgins together, that if you can do it, discover it all on your own with that one person. But just for the record, I want to make it very clear, Wally and I never held hands and we never kissed, because that would be really faggy. <laughs> the Dutchman, thank you. We like to take a minute at Outspoken to remind ourselves that we are not a modern aberration. LGBTQI plus folks have existed for thousands of years. In 1984, a group of lesbians launched a publication in response to a radical feminist periodical called Off Our Backs. Off Our Backs began in 1970, announcing itself to be a paper for all women who are fighting for the liberation of their lives. But many lesbians felt that they were being overlooked and that Off Our Backs was prudish and anti-sex. In 84, a small group of lesbians launched On Our Backs, announcing their goals of sexual freedom, respect, and empowerment for lesbians. Publishers Debbie Sundahl and Myrna Alana were the first to feature lesbian erotica in the U.S. They hired Susie Bright, who was running a radical feminist vibrator store in San Francisco, and she became the magazine's editor and resident sex advice columnist Susie Sexpert. Other contributors included erotic photographer Honey Lee Cottrell, lesbian feminist BDSM expert Patrick Califia, and lesbian herstory archives founder Joan Nessel. Off Our Backs threatened to sue because On Our Backs writers were discussing strap-ons and leatherwear for women. They were printing photo spreads of punk women proudly showing their naked bodies. A mermaid-themed photo shoot with silicone dildos was quite taboo. Sex toys were still referred to as marital aids, not toys. They published fiction, reviews, advice, pictorials, and when they first launched, they had a bull dagger of the month. Most women's bookstores wouldn't even carry on our backs, and they had to sell issues at anarchist and gay men's bookstores. But they persisted and survived, continuing to discuss controversial topics. 
On Our Backs was the first lesbian publication to talk about lesbians with AIDS, and they covered lesbians who transitioned to men. Like most gay publications, financial struggle and infighting brought the publication to an end. Printing was five to ten times more expensive than other magazines because printers were prudes, and some older printers were still concerned about the legality of printing pornography, which really hadn't been an issue since the 60s, and ad sales were very difficult to come by. On Our Back stopped printing in 2006, but you can find most of its content collected in several books, like the photo collection Nothing But The Girl by editors Susie Bright and Jill Posner, and Lindsay McLoon's collection of On Our Back's best erotic fiction. Hello. Hello again. Buddy King. Buddy is a native Southside Chicagoan, an actor, writer, and director who is currently working with two other professional creatives on a musical highlighting the historical events experienced by the boomers. We gotta love what boomers did for all of us. Marijuana, free love, Hippies, come on. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Buddy King. Come on. It's odd that I'm intimidated. Uh, the last large role I did was in San Francisco, and I was wearing uh, fishnet hose and uh, very little else. And um, this is far more intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about a time in the past, 1955. It was uh, a moment for me, and I was nine when my mother sat me down to explain the B&B &B scenario. She was very uncomfortable and summed it up conclusively in one concise sentence. The man puts his thing in the woman's thing, and nine months later, they have a baby. Okay. Now... The use of any pronoun depends on the listener being able to refer to something else in the mentioned in the discourse. Thing was as close to the word penis or vagina that my mother ever ventured. I am visual and I needed a model. For some reason, gumball machines became my visual for procreation. <laughs> Using this model made perfect sense to me. You put in a penny, you slide, yeah, if that, that dates you. You, uh, you, you slide the lever and you've got a gumball, sometimes more, sometimes twins. So, what's the big deal? If you want a baby, a little finagling with things, and it's yours. Unlike Bozo Under the Sea, this was a story without illustrations. And I had not the faintest notion or interest in that of which she spoke. At social gatherings, I heard my mother mention more than once, oh, he knows all about it. Has since he was nine, she was partially correct. I could purchase gumballs with finesse and well-established technique and follow-through. Okay, I'm an only child. No brothers, no sisters, no male relatives of my age, and a father with whom I never had a conversation. Because of childhood polio, type 1 diabetes, and chronic asthma, no pals or locker room banter, the equivalent of growing up on a desert island. Tarzan had apes. I had nothing. Okay. I didn't know why or how the equipment worked or what to expect from it. When I experienced my first orgasm, I was sure that I had broken something. 
and it would require medication, treatment, and maybe another hospitalization. I reasoned instinctively that this was a condition peculiar only to me, or I would have been told about it or at least overheard a conversation. Surely medic or Dr. Kildare or somebody would have had an episode that included my malady. Okay, but no matter the consequence, even if I did require hospitalization or medication, whatever it took, I knew that it was a condition that I wanted to learn to live with. <laughs> and since it, such things seemed to never be spoken of, my special power, much like the Marvel superheroes, remained my secret. Now, incongruously enough, this leads me to an introduction to our dining room, and more explicitly to the two empty whiskey decanters that adorn the sideboard there. They rested on a mirrored platter and were never used to contain anything. They were for show. Much like a coat of arms or a taxidermied 18-pound trout, our dining room <laughs> was the hallway from which other rooms might be accessed and used for dining only on alternate Thanksgivings. Its main purpose was migration to the kitchen, bathroom, bedrooms, or living room. On arriving home from one of my initial days in high school, enterprising, resourceful young mind that I had, I took note of the comely diameter of the necks of these decanters. It was love. <laughs> well, no, it was lust at first realization. My father was at work, as was my mother, who was enthusiastically counting SNH green stamps at Weebles. The house was ours, as was the bathroom floor, where I developed a tactile buddy relationship with a decanter. <laughs> decanter with benefits. <laughs> with my new multifaceted friend on a blue chenille bath mat. I recognized a good deal. I, <laughs> I recognize a good deal of initial sexual contacts are awkward. I mean, neither of us was experienced, well, I know I wasn't, and, and one of us was uncomforted by a painful amount of abrasion. Again, the enterprising, resourceful adolescent mind, Vaseline. Okay, once all the elements were assembled, the task was accomplished in less than 60 seconds, including foreplay and climax. Pacing just wasn't a consideration. Classic Catholic school scenario. First, the orgasm. Second, the guilt. Okay, there were several problems. First, where to hide my consort? I found that Vaseline does not wash off glass, no matter what the temperature of the water. <laughs> and not at all with soap. Detergents were not yet commonly used in the United States. I couldn't look it up online because there wasn't an online. And although my mother knew how to clean everything, asking her instinctively just didn't seem like the best idea. I had just accomplished something unbeknownst to any other mortal. For I would, I, if I had, I would have heard about it or somebody would have talked about it, right? Okay. It just didn't seem like the correct time to discuss my discovery. I mean, all the bullies at school had their secrets that they didn't share with me. Now I had one that I was keeping from them, <laughs> for my very own. Okay, 
besides re reputable science requires tireless, extensive research before any sort of hypothesis is acquired. So like all love stories with obstacles and conflict, I knew I must secret away my partner. If I replaced the decanter, it was only a matter of time before the blemishes were observed, and hiding the evidence was just not a possibility in my mother's house. There was no alternative. I had to dispose of my partner. <laughs> in my parents' house, I had no private space, no area in which I could maintain my mate without discovery. My room adjoined my parents' bedroom and was separated only by a curtain doorway. My closet was maintained by my mother. No attic and no hiding place. You know, with expanded cleaning expertise, we might have coexisted for years. <laughs> Me passing secret smirks, recalling our minutes together, anticipating our next tete-a-tete, -tete, but it wasn't to be. Our house was bordered by an overgrown railroad embankment where, with a miserable effort, I buried the first of the twins, realizing even then that I would be substituting something else that was washable and could be concealed, and yet able to imagine just what that would be. It was months later my mother asked, where is that other decanter? An innocent shrug absolved me of an involvement in the mystery. I mean. I could hardly tell her about our things interacting. She might expect juice glasses. Okay, look, <laughs> looking back on those days, exchanging coming of age anecdotes with friends, I consider myself very lucky in that while others were enacting complex actions to gain access to playboy, playgirl, all man, I was mystifyingly serene thumbing through a Waterford catalog. <laughs> Thank you. I will never look at decanters the same way again. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. If you've got a moment, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platform. Melvina Gaynor recorded her fabulous story in August 2017, The Dutchman in July 2017, and Buddy King in February 2019. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim L. Hunt. Curated by Archie Jamjun. Artistic director is David Fink. Stage manager, Brad Bailoff. Story collector, Ray Teresi. Audiovisual tech, Brian Smith. Podcast producer, Devlin Camp. Hi there. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack, or on Zoom during the pandemic, and is recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQ community. Find out more at sidetrackchicago.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Thanks for listening. Bye.